0: So this evening I'd like to speak about the interrelationship of compassion and wisdom, which also uh, informs the relationship between our inner and outer worlds. So it's said after the Buddha's enlightenment under the great Bodhi tree in India, 2,600 years ago, when he profoundly opened to and understood the four noble truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering, the Eightfold Noble Path. And he understood this deeply for the advancement, he said, of the holy life, for the ceasing, the stilling, the direct knowledge to enlightenment and to nibbana. It's also said that even with this rare and precious understanding, he was reluctant to offer what he understood to the world around him. Because he thought at that time, right afterwards, that listeners without direct experience would be stuck, stuck in conceptual understanding, in conceptualizations, and would misunderstand the true meaning of what he came to understand and brought freedom to his own mind and heart. That people really needed to practice, and not just to understand theory, but to understand experientially. So to make a longer story short, compassion opened him to connect with how it is in the world and see the suffering in the world. And it's said that, at that time, a celestial being came down from that celestial realm and implored the Buddha to share what he had learned with all beings. Because there are beings with little dust in their eyes, this celestial being said. There are beings with little dust in their eyes. He reminded the Buddha of that. And that they would be able to take the teachings in and understand them experientially and become free. And so with that and the compassion of the Buddha, that's what uh, began the teachings in this world. So it's these precious teachings that we're all riding on today. We're all uh, coming, they're all coming to us from the compassion of this great teacher, our root teacher, the Buddha. I don't write too many journals, and I was too busy raising children when I was going through the the Dharma in the beginning, in the younger days. But not too long ago, a few years ago, I found a journal with uh, some passages in it. And in that journal, there was a question that I had asked Menindraji, one of our t- teachers. And I said, what's, what's the reason for my life? Why am I really living? Why was I born? And, um, you know, all those questions that nobody would, manindra- but <laughs> would take the time to answer me. In fact, we were just laughing today at the table um, during one of the meals at You would ask Manindra a question, and if there were a group of people in the world, in the uh, room, he wouldn't stop talking until the last person left. And sometimes it would take hours for him to answer the question. But he did answer this question pretty quickly. Uh, He said, The reason for your living in the world is to develop compassion and wisdom. It was that simple to develop compassion and wisdom which is what we are doing here in our practice with one another so in some buddhist traditions wisdom and compassion are called the two great wings of the dharma the two great wings of the dharma and it's said that we need both wings in order for this great bird of the dharma to liberate itself to fly to really be free. So I'd like to talk about those two facets of our practice here together. The Dharma means the truth of how it is, the natural unfolding of the deepest truths of life, not only to open to them, but to really accept them, to come, become intimate with them, as we have all been talking about in our offering of the teachings to each one of you. We open to the nature of how things are, not just the nature around us, which is a great support to us, of course, but to the nature of how it is in our hearts and in our minds and the way it naturally unfolds for each one of us uniquely. So this is what we're opening to here, nature in its raw form, in its rawest form. So, in these rare conditions of more quiet and stillness in the outer develop in the outer environment, we're able to develop inwardly the same quiet and stillness. Hopefully, when we give each other this sense of seclusion, leave each other alone. As as uh, Greg was uh, admonishing this morning, that um, we give each other the space to be with oneself. This relative solitude, so we have less distraction. So the outer environment, when we don't have to keep relating to one another, then the inner environment becomes stiller, like a still forest pool. And there is this ability to see very deeply into that pool of clarity and stillness. So we open to what's going on beneath the outer layer of busyness in our lives. And this comes as a relief to us, most of us, until we start really seeing what's going on beneath those layers. And it's really hard to face. So I'm going to try to acknowledge some of those things today. What, What are the layers that we open to and acknowledge how difficult that is. Of course, there are beautiful experiences too, and we can't put those aside and say it's not always all, all just suffering or dukkha, but we understand this ability to open is a great, can be a great relief to us to be able to know we can face something that we thought we couldn't face before. We also open to the fact of how vulnerable we are as human beings. Sometimes I like to change that first noble truth, which means, the first noble truth is dukkha-sacca. Dukkha means suffering, and sacca means the truth. So that first noble truth is, there is the truth of suffering. And the way that I actually um, experience it in my heart is there is the truth of vulnerability because of this great change that we're always facing in our lives. And then when we see on a deeper level the moment-to-moment change, it's such a great vulnerability. And then when we bring that vulnerability in the world and see how it is vulnerable out there, it becomes, um, you know, something we really have to be able to face inside, so we can face what's going on outside. One of our great leaders of, of this country, said the other day in a newscast that, every day we're opening to something, uh, very vulnerable. We're opening to more and more sense of instability. That nothing big happened in the world while you were here, by the way. It's the same old, it's really the same old thing. But it's true that, you know, this one day of instability, of vulnerability after another, it really has affected us in our lives and in this time and day of age of our time. So we're actually born into this world of great vulnerability, this constant changing conditions around us and inside of us. So I'm just saying what you already know, that conditions at every level are constantly in flux. It's good to acknowledge that. This can leave us feeling that kind of raw vulnerability that we do feel in a retreat like this but this is right for us to feel this way i mean that means that your practice is going well if you're feeling that there are times in all of our practices here those of us who are sharing the dharma with you and many of you if not all of you out there if your practice if you're suffering that means you're doing the practice <laughs> in fact you know at times of great suffering every one of us in different ways have experienced that when you go to the teacher and tell them how deep it is for you and how um, it's impossible to be with, instead of you know having such great compassion, when you come to this great rawness, they smile. You know They're really happy that you've reached that place. I remember going to Manindra one time and saying, one of the various times, and saying, I have to leave. I can't stay here anymore. And at that time I was practicing with him in a kind of a jungly part of Maui. And it's like that in his birth country, too. And the, what, he, what he responded to me, you know, he was a, he was a bit, um, he was happy with what was going on, but when I kept telling him I couldn't do it, I couldn't do it, he got pretty stern with me. And he said, I'm not asking you to cut the jungle, you know, to go out there with it. He said, I'm just asking you to be mindful. And I thought, that, that cutting the jungle would be much easier. You know? <laughs> would you please give me one of those? But I kept going. You know, They do a, a combination of, of soothing us and admonishing us when they're good teachers. So here we are, open to the vulnerability of life, the situations that are going on in the world today, economically, politically, militarily, agriculturally, all of those things are affecting one another and much more. I can't even name it all. And then there's the unrest and injustice in the world, the social and economic injustice around racism, around gender bias, around all kinds of bias, age bias and people who have disabilities, that kind of bias. It's just rampant. And uh, we're faced with it, and it's very difficult to face, especially if we are in one of those situations. The elements of the earth, air, water, and fire, endlessly interacting with one another, because of the environmentally changing environmental change that's going on. It's it's no longer a myth, you know. It's true. Every day they're bringing out facts and figures of how the earth is warming up and how it's changing everything, and the cause of that warming up has many, many different conditions, which we are part of as human beings that partake of the goods of this earth and that we discard on this earth as well, and the things that we eat. And uh, so the changing environment and the conditions that are caused by all of this We're coming to a different responsibility for, hopefully, as human beings on this earth. And we need to give it more respect and attention. So then there's a vulnerability of our bodies, affecting, of course, all of the above, including the natural process of aging. So today, for example, and yesterday, uh, just coming, for me, coming to see how much, a different kind of rest that I need, a different rhythm that I need to take in life in order to handle things in my life. And just kind of removing myself for a few hours from connecting and being with myself really helps. Just simple things like that that you are able to do in a retreat like this, which is wonderful. And so the mind and the heart as well. We begin to notice the habit patterns, which are so hard to open to, those facets of greed and hatred and not seeing things the way they really are, ignoring and camouflaging because it's hard to face. The underlying causes of our feeling of sense of dis-ease and our sense of disharmony with ourselves and the world. These are all facts of our lives that um, cannot be denied. So we're facing all of that here. And sometimes that we're taken by surprise and sometimes we're overwhelmed by it, and we really need a strong sense of awareness to be able to do that. Some of these deeply um, rooted habits are so stubborn. you know they they just keep coming and coming. So they're unrelenting. So most of us, most of you, understand this as a truth of dukkha, the truth that we're all born into. When I came to this path many years ago, um, it was a a real relief to me to have this first noble truth expounded. Because previous to that, I started, I, I was understanding that it was not going to be possible for me to get beyond. Because where I was wasn't ever um, acknowledged. It was only where I needed to get to. And so in this, when I came to this path, when I heard the first noble truth, I, I realized that this is a path that I need to be on, a path that actually acknowledges where I'm starting from. And then presents the ways and means to be able to face that, where I'm starting from, this truth of suffering. So this is the truth of what we're opening to. It's inevitable if we don't um, if we're here and we don't open to it, then we're not uh, really doing our job of being aware. Another time that I came to, a place, a, a different level of suffering, because there's different levels of them, which during you know the time we're practicing, we learn how to deal with the different levels of understanding, uh, confusions in our mind, and hatred, and and attachment in our own mind, and this is a this is something that we learn a skill set of handling all of these different levels as we go through them. But I went to one of my um, teachers, he wasn't the teacher that was always there, but he was a teacher that taught with my, the major teacher I did um, intensive practice in. And this teacher's name, he's a monk, he's a monk from Burma, and his name is Bilin Seydal. And I was opening to a new layer of my practice at that time. It was really, really difficult. And um, I was reporting to him every other day. And when reporting to him, he didn't really know what to do sometimes with what I was explaining to him. Because it was just another you know angle of, of difficulty in the body and the relationship of the mind to the body. And so there was one time that gave me a really clear sense, of an impression, a teaching that I took in and, and said, that's what I need to do for myself. The way that Bilin out treated me was the way that I needed to treat myself. So I went through like my few minutes of letting him know what was going on in the mind, in the body, and he just looked at me with tender, really tender, accepting, loving, compassionate eyes. And he said, this is how it is, through the translator. He said, this is how it is, isn't it? And his voice was so soft and tender, and his look upon me was so accepting of everything that was being presented. It wasn't that I was wrong or not a good yogi or being able to say, it's hard to face. But he was saying that it's totally acceptable You to feel this way. It's totally okay that you can feel this way, and I still care for you. That's what his eyes and his tone of voice was saying. And it held me, you know, through my whole retreat during that time. My other teacher, Seda Upandita, tends to be very precise and clear and sharp and get to the point, and that helped me too. He also had this really fierce compassion that said, what I want for you the most is for you to be liberated. That's why I'm really straight with you. But we need both. We need both that, that straightness, that sharpness that's being able to see things as they are, and the compassion as well. And a lot of times we have to give that compassion to ourselves. So how do we do that? Compassion is a basic goodness that's a potential of our own minds and hearts, and we need to practice it to nourish that potential. It's not a thing that's always there. You know, because when we say "always there," it kind of implies that there's a solidity to it, or there's a kind of it's there's a baseline, or that you know there's something other than emptiness there. It's a potentiality of the mind that can arise when we nourish it, when we give it a space to be there, when we're willing to be soft with ourselves, when we come across something difficult within us or around us. It's described as the basic potentiality of goodness of the heart. Love, goodwill. It's metta, basic loving kindness, that turns to suffering. That's able to turn to suffering, and then that aspect of compassion comes out of that metta. So the basis of it is unconditional goodwill, unconditional love unconditional friendliness that's able to turn towards compassion and actually towards suffering and really touch it, to come close to it, to be with it, to open to it, to acknowledge it. So it has that relationship to suffering to actually go towards it and not hold back And it takes time to be able to do that. Sometimes when we first open to something difficult, it takes a little practice to get closer to it, to get closer to the pain in the body or the heart pain. So sometimes uh, when it's really hard, um, I've had to do this for myself, is when there was pain in the body or heart pain or heartbreak, I've really had to be able to, to um, go towards it gently and maybe um, carefully. And then maybe at one point I could say, I could get close enough to it, now maybe I can just touch it. And then just do a brief connecting with it, kind of a homeopathic dose of like, okay, it's all right, just for this moment, and then step away. And then maybe take the mind someplace else to like opening to nature um, or opening to the sound of birds around me or opening to something else, maybe some lights around me. And then come back again and say, okay, I can touch you and be longer here. The pain in the body, the pain in the heart. I remember there was one time I was, it was a time when I was in Burma and I had ordained temporarily as a nun. I was in my 50s then and uh, I'm in my 60s now and I, it was a long ago but I still remember I was going through that phase of, uh, um, you know, hormones in the 50s and I was in Burma and having hot flashes. And I was, you know, dressed as a nun, of course. I had ordained as a nun temporarily. So I was wearing these kind of polyester robes that are like plastic, and there's layers of them. There's a skirt that you wrap around you, and then on top of that there's the inner robe, and then on top of that is the outer robe, and then there's this, you know, kind of heavy sash that you wear to show that you're a daughter of the Buddha. And... Um, and it, it was like uh, there was, I, I just wanted to take those off when I was in the hall, you know, but you couldn't. You had to wear these formal things in uh, all of it in, in when you're in this public place. And um, I was just sweating bullets all the time. And I had to change my robes quite often. And, and then I had to hint to somebody that I needed another set of robes because you can't ask for anything. So you just kind of hint that you know they're all sweaty and you can't wash and dry them fast enough. So had another set of robes that I could change into. And um, during that time, you know, I was placed in a in a in a on um, the second level of the hall for for the nuns, and um, I was placed right in front of the Buddha. And any of you who've been to India or Burma, even. Um, Thailand and maybe Sri Lanka. Buddhas there like are they kind of light them all up and they have flashing lights all around them. And it's like um, you know they're really vivid and they consider that to be beautiful, you know, when it's like that, but it it's like a neon light outside of a you know a restaurant. and they I guess they thought it was you know very nice for them to place me in front of. The, the Buddha statue, the Buddha, thing, you know, light, lighted whatever it was, and I was, I oh, it was like I was just complaining inside myself, and I saw that, of course, and at some point I realized. It was so good to be in front of those flashing lights because every time I had a hot flash, I would just open my eyes you know and those seeing, 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 and then come back and touch that and then open the eyes again, seeing seeing, and touch that you know bodily sensation of suffering. It was terrible, but those lights saved me. <laughs> so doing this, the point I'm making is doing this back and forth thing of just when you're really having that deep suffering, just having the compassion to just touch it and go to something else and touch it and go out to something else. But keep coming back and develop the skill set to actually be with it longer. And then not only you know, touching whatever uh, difficulty there is in the body, but also what's the relationship of the mind to the body, you know, the complaining mind, Or the um, why me mind, oh poor me mind, you know, or the mind that says, I want to get out of here, Um, desert this place, you know. So, what's the relationship of the mind? Go to that, not forgetting that because that's the source of suffering. It's the mind's relationship with the body. So, taking that into account, that when you when you do your practice of really coming close to what's difficult, to that suffering. So compassion is called the quivering of the heart that opens to what's difficult. Um, And what that tells me when I feel the quivering of the heart, and I, for myself, I feel it um, mostly, I can feel it mostly towards others, you know, I kind of was a born mother in a way. I mean, end up having three children very early in in my life. And um, just automatically, compassion can go out more easily than it can come in to myself. So when I see or feel my heart quiver, it makes me feel that I'm alive. You know, that I really feel for what's going on around me and in the world. And... Um, so, that, that description of the quivering of the heart that turns to suffering is one of the descriptions of compassion. There's a, a, I'm connected a little bit to the Tibetan practices, which I love and I really honor. And one of them is the Tara practices, you know, the, the practices of the feminine that are shown in the feminine aspect. Of courage and um, you know compassion and swiftness and uh, loving kindness and stillness. So the Green Tara is one of them that I've never practiced Green Tara, but I understand it that it's the feminine divine aspect of compassion. And I've noticed in and I've also been told in teachings uh, from Tibetan Buddhists that. Compassion, uh, as um, aspected in the Green Tara, shows the Green Tara with her right leg in a sitting position, but with her right leg um, partially extended to be ready to act, to be ready not only to feel that quivering of the heart, but to act it out in the world. And that's a very important part of compassion, that it's not only about feeling it, which I thought before, it's about feeling the compassion in my heart. But it needs to be paired up with the actual action of, of doing good in the world, of facing what there is in the world and in ourselves, and doing what we can to alleviate the suffering. So in our practice here, we learn that we can no longer fool ourselves when we really face what's going on, um, it's impossible to turn away from it. We may want to, and we may turn away sometimes and stop our practice because it's difficult. But in the long run, it brings us back because we deeply know it's so necessary to complete our fulfillment as human beings to be able to face what's going on fully and not back off from it inside and outside. So we learn to be really honest with ourselves and uh, face things with that type of clarity and honesty. And it's interesting that I learned in all the lives of the bodhisattva, that means the Buddha-to-be, uh, who it said uh, this, the Buddha-to-be would go through many, many lifetimes and world cycles of preparing to be a Buddha, by really um, defining and uh, improving and strengthening all those beautiful qualities of the mind and heart, in order to become a full-fledged Buddha. And a Buddha to be a Bodhisattva can break all the the precepts. You know, can break all the five precepts except one of them in order to continue on, his, on that determination to become uh, a Buddha. Uh, the, the precept to refrain from killing, to refrain from uh, lying, to refrain from sexual misconduct, to refrain from um, telling, uh, t- taking uh, things that make the mind unclear. And I think I forgot one. Stealing? Did I say that? Yeah. So the one he could not, he could break all of them except for the one on truthfulness. That if he ever told a lie, he would break that determination, that asp—that uh, aspiration to become a Buddha. That's why it's so incredibly important for us to be really honest with ourselves. And to be honest in the world, of course. But to really be honest with ourselves with what is really going on in our lives, in our hearts. So it really um, accentuated to me that uh, how being honest is so important, just to be able to see what's going on and to be able, like, to tell our teachers what's going on with us in a very truthful manner, very precisely truthful. So it's opening to parts of what makes up this body-mind continuum and to be able to see what, we're, what is not easy to see, to really face it, what we aren't used to seeing, what we're not proud of seeing sometimes, feelings and states of mind that we haven't acknowledged or maybe we have but just kind of with a eking backwards. You know, and kind of turning away from it, and you know, later maybe they're hard to be with, and we distract ourselves a lot from doing that. Um, that's why we we take the some of the precepts of renunciation, those three extra precepts, so we're not distracting ourselves. We we can't keep the continuity, so the momentum of mindfulness gets really strong and powerful, and can pierce the illusions of solidity and permanence and self. So we, we can't cover up with excuses or defenses anymore. We really have to face what's going on inside. So shame and prejudice, judging self and others, um, disdaining others, when they're just doing innocently, living their own lives. So of course there are beautiful qualities too, but for the most part those are easy to open to. And compassion really helps us to soften our hearts and to have the courage to open to all of that and really just name it and touch it with a, a gentle touch of awareness. So that also opens our our courage and our trust in ourselves and our gratitude for the ability to do that. So all of this takes a fair amount of of energy, the energy of um, not just awareness, but the courage that accompanies that of compassion. So we begin to know with our rational minds these patterns related to greed, hatred, and delusion that are part of what makes up this body-mind continuum, and they're so deeply rooted and entrenched, and we fall into them easily because they're they're kind of like a deep pathway. One of um, the yogis who came to me a long time ago said that we were we were practicing. Actually, this retreat was. With Joseph first started many, many years ago at another place in Santa Rosa. And um, we've been um, I've been teaching this with Joseph for twenty years already. And uh, during that time, there are these cow paths all around. How many of you have been to the Santa Rosa? Yeah, and the, you know, the cow paths all around. It's in kind of cattle country in a way. And somebody came to me and said, you know what, I was walking out there and I would fall into these deep trenches that I never saw because you know how cows walk, they've got these four legs but somehow they're able to go go in a straight line and make one narrow path. So um, this yogi said to me, there are actually cow paths of my mind that I just fall into. I don't see them, but they're so deeply entrenched that can fall into these cow paths of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so, we know with our rational minds that these patterns are deep. They're so entrenched and they're harmful to ourselves and to others. But it's hard to really get out of that cow path. We kind of have to know what happens before that, before we fall into it to really be mindful of what goes on before the falling and to kind of know when to nip it in the bud, so to say. So we begin to have a growing sense that just as we see this in ourselves, we start to understand that this is what's happening to everyone. Just as we feel this sort of entrenchment sometimes in these various places of greed, hatred, and delusion. This is how it is for others. So it's no wonder that the world goes in those cycles. It's no wonder that we see, you know, all over the place, young and old friends, politicians, leaders of the world, those even in clergy, falling into these trenches and so we can have instead of having disdain for that which we might have and that would be a natural human response of course but we can also maybe have compassion for that see just as we know this in ourselves we can know this in others so that's what makes the the connection between how it is for us how it is for others this is the ecology of compassion His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that until you understand the meaning of suffering there will be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. You know, we can say it but if we don't know that place in ourselves then it's really hard for us to have it truly have this compassion for another being. So, you know, when I've gone through hard times um, and somebody says, I, "I have so much compassion for you, and can't you just get over it?" You know. <laughs> and uh, really, that raises like not compassion in me. You know, I feel like boom. You know, <laughs> it's not about just getting over it. It's really about going through it. You can't go over it or get over it. You know, you really have to be with it. And be honest with how it is. Some things take a long time to get over, depending how deep and complex it is in your own heart and mind. So just as it opened compassion and wisdom in the life of someone we call the Buddha, this fully awakened one, it opens that in ourselves too, this ability to face the disappointments of life, the pain of life, the way that it's hard. So from what I hear and see in the various communities I'm connected with, and probably you too, there's a growing sense of urgency in general with how the world is now to help and to do what we can. You know, to, to take that little area or maybe that big area that we feel We have some savvy about, some know-how, and also some combination and balance of wisdom and compassion to connect with the world and to help and to bring it out there, to offer our gifts, however minimal, small we may deem them to be, and just to offer them with, because of compassion, because of wisdom, too. To touch the world which is increasing in complexity and speed, to touch it with the simpleness that we are doing here, the simplicity of just taking one step at a time to um, really slowing down and being at another rhythm, at another pace maybe in life. I try to bring a few stories in so it's not just about words and theory. Um, with regard to this simplicity and slowing down, a few years ago I was, um, I was going through a really difficult time uh, in my life and I, real, I realized that I needed time to go to a different, to kind of let my pace go to a different rhythm in life. I was traveling a lot and, and doing a lot of things good in the world and connection with my own family and children. And yet, I just felt like things were going too fast and um, that there needed to be more simplicity. So I did um, a, a walk in Spain, that Camino de Santiago, and I really felt that walking, just being at that pace, really helped me to go at a different pace in life, to really be at the pace of nature. And, and not, you know, taking a train or a bus or a plane. And um, I did a lot of walking, of course. And I walked one year and then the next year. I walked again, took a little longer route. So walked all in all 500 miles. And it was really, really great. It really changed the rhythm of my life to be able to live in that simplicity, you know, just to wake up each morning and knew that I was going to a certain town or to um, just get on my shoes and say, okay, I'm just going to take one step at a time and did the best I could to be with one step at a time and to see what the mind was doing, uh, different parts of those steps. Thus, bringing to humanity simplicity and slowing down, this is a great thing that you're doing here. And it it really does affect people in the world when you can walk in a certain way when you don't have to be in a hurry and you can learn to be mindful with each step. In a way, just to put a plug in for the walking meditation, the walking meditation is the most important bridge of this whole retreat to your being going home and continuing in the world. So really... I hope you're putting a lot of value on that because it does carry a lot of gravitas in your world when you bring it there. And to touch the world and the earth with kindness. You know, like every time we put a foot down without greed, hatred, and delusion running around in our minds and hearts, we're touching the earth with a footstep of kindness because then there is an absence of that in our hearts, in our minds. So these are all really simple things. It, it doesn't have to get that complex that you're making a great difference in, in your world, in your life, and in people who just see you walking in that way. There have been leaders in the time of um, the Buddha and afterwards who would just see a person walking slowly. Say, in their stories of One story in particular, a monk walking across a field, a battlefield, and the monarch of that time saw this monk walking across in such a peaceful way, kind of adding his blessings of peacefulness to that battlefield. And it changed the view of that monarch, and that monarch decided to become peaceful. So we never can tell, you know, the how it is, uh, how, how our footsteps and how our beingness in the world, even without saying anything, affects one another. So that's a strength we, we start to have to know that we must, maybe we can take this uh, compassion into the world with a bit of wisdom. But equally as strong, there's a growing spiritual urgency to go within and that's what brought us all here to this place together, to go within to that place of recognizing and relaxing, as uh, Greg was had pointed out so beautifully the other evening, recognizing, relaxing around what's going on, allowing and accepting how it is in our hearts, and also taking interest and kind of being able to investigate in an experiential way what's happening. And to know it, as, to know it all as nature, it takes its, that kind of selfing away to see that non-identification when it's seen as just nature arising and passing away. So in the course of doing this, we're able to experience a clearer view of our lives, a clearer view of our li- in, inner lives, which we hardly take time for. I mean, I, it's amazing and wonderful that you could take this time here in your life. So we're able to have this clear view of how it actually is. And it takes a sobering honesty to really see it as it is this courage, unflinching courage to see the underpinnings of our personality. And um, like Lily Tomlin said, self-knowledge is not necessarily good news. It's, you know, it's really hard to take. We turn to the news on, on our channels. Um, I, I turn to the Apple news, that because I have that kind of device. And just see what's basically going on in the world. And sometimes I think, I'm just trying to avoid what's going on in here. You know, because it's... um, Yeah, but when I see what's going on out there, sometimes I think it's better to go in here. It's like, oh my gosh. I love this um, saying of Agnes Au. She's a, a Buddhist woman who spoke about this in the Shambhala Sun many years ago, and I took down what she wrote and said. She said, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in so doing to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. It means to really take down the layers of the heart and the mind and to be able to really face them and see life in an unfiltered way. So we face what has gone on in this inner terrain, what, what has gone on in such an unchecked manner for so long, unaware of it, and then we become aware of it, which is a good thing, but it's a hard thing to do. We begin to ask questions What really creates harmony? What really creates a sense of deep ease in our lives? Not just within us, but between us on a social level. What habitual forces create an ecology of um, dis-ease? An ecology of harm instead of harmony? an ecology of agitation instead of peace. And so we begin to work in ways which refrain from harm and turn our hearts and minds to harmony and what causes that. And so this is what happens to us as we begin to see more deeply into our own hearts and minds. So granted, our practice may not radically change the whole world, but in fact transforming ourselves and the little circles that we go in create ripples that go out and make it easier for at least that, that rippling effect that goes around us. And with many of us doing that, then a large part of the world could be affected. So this practice is a heart-based understanding and connection with others that creates wisdom. This is our practice here. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or make them as right. It just stops these atrocities from continuing in our own hearts, in our own minds, which has an undeniable, infinite outreach in the world around us. So I'd like to talk a little bit now about how we need both these two wings of the Dharma, compassion and wisdom. Wisdom is seeing things as they really are, really facing the truth of the impermanent, impersonal, uh, unsatisfactory nature of all of life, meaning... There's nothing in life because of impermanence that's going to give us lasting happiness, which is what we're always looking for and attached to. So when we can stop running after what we want or running away from what we don't want, and we can go towards what is beneficial and refrain from what is not beneficial. This is wisdom. So both Compassion and wisdom need to evolve and strengthen in our lives. So this tenderness of compassion, this is how it, it works in our practice. It's just kind of like a shorthand view of um, seeing it. It relaxes the attention in the body and the heart, and it tends towards opening Of the heart and the mind. It helps that in all the stages of opening. There are different stages of the practice where we really need that, that tenderness, because if we don't, there's avoidance and there's harshness. So there's more calm and less reactivity naturally, and a sense of equanimity and balance can arise when we can first bring that tenderness to the truth of life, to the truth of what we see, what is being seen. All of this is enormous support for awareness to remain steady, continuous, and clear. It enables awareness to do its job to reflect clearly what's going on in the field, the objects that awareness is attentive to. It reflects it clearly without the veils or the filters of greed or hatred or delusion. When there's this ability to be tender, to go near, to not be afraid of, to not be attached to, but just clearly face what's happening beneath the layers of conceptual reality So awareness has the power to reflect clearly how it all appears and disappears faster than sometimes we, awareness, can catch up with. It's all appearing, arising, changing, and passing away, moment to moment to moment, on this pixelated level that awareness brings us to in our lives. Nothing is permanently satisfying and reliable because it's always changing. This is a sobering truth that awareness faces and wisdom develops over and over and over again. It sees that. It has to see that as many times as necessary for your karmic predicament to reach a tipping point where it all of a sudden reaches a great insight about impermanence. And so, there's nowhere, not even in the mind, not even in consciousness, not even uh, in intention, can there be found an enduring entity that's solid. Everything is seen as arising, changing, and dissolving Usually, as Joseph had pointed out, consciousness and even intention can be one of the last holdouts. But that too is eventually seen in that way. So this entity that we've kind of made up out of this combination of this materiality of the body and the various facets of the mind, we kind of, from time immemorial, have cobbled those Conditions or those um, khandas or those um, uh, aggregates together, you know, either one, two of them, or all of them together, and called it. This is self. It's just it's a name that we placed on something, like Joseph was saying. The name that we put on the Big Dipper, which is a, a combination of different stars. <laughs> which different stars also have their way of being impermanent, and so too in the body-mind continuum. We put a name around this, a concept, cobbling it all together and saying this is self. But in reality, moment to moment, experientially, the mind is beginning to see, and everyone is at different layers and levels of seeing this, that it isn't, really true that anything is solid or permanent or continuous in a way that makes it solid. It's continuous in the way that it always arises and passes away, but it never stays that way. And so nobody, it's not that somebody's telling us this and we're believing it blindly, but it's just happening this way. And it's being, awareness is seeing it, it's being known clearly. So on the relative plane of existence, we call this a self. And on, um, we call this a sense of self. But on the ultimate plane, on the ultimate and absolute level, we understand that there really isn't one. We're just calling it this. But we, kind of, we understand at different layers and levels that it's really all this ephemeral stuff happening moment to moment to moment. There is this sense of self made up of this flow of experiences, sensations in the body and different facets of the mind, experiencing it and knowing it. And so um, this is what we have called self. And on the relative level, when we understand how it really is, we can call it a sense of self. You know, we don't have to grieve that we lost a self. We never really had it in the beginning. It's more like, now we know it differently. We know this as a sense of self, and that's okay on a relative level. This strong awareness, accompanied with the courage of compassion, faces a vividness of that truth. It begins to reflect the ultimate reality of these basic processes of the mind and body continuum in a very clear way and understand it on a relative level too. What happens in the process is, as some of you may have seen already or maybe have seen but haven't yet kind of put words to it, is that the defining lines of what we call body become intangible and thin. And very, very porous. It's just various sensations arising and passing away hardness and softness, coolness and heat and warmth, um, smoothness, roughness, lightness, heaviness, all of those sens- sensate feelings that we experience. But also seen is the insubstantiality and the impermanence of every single one of them on a moment-to-moment level. And in time, the mind isn't overlaying or cobbling together any concept about it. It's just quietly going along, noticing this and that and this and that. And the concepts of me and mine and who I am begin to disappear from our language in those moments, and in the belief that has been long held from time immemorial. So in time, that belief or that view also dissolves. And and new wisdom arises experientially, not theoretically. It's through seeing this moment to moment to moment at deep levels So we see what's going on in the mind, not just in the body. The unpleasant, neutral, pleasant feelings that arise and pass away. Volitional intentions and consciousness also arise and pass away. The intimacy of knowing all this becomes so vivid. The unfiltered life is really seen very, very clearly, unflinchingly flowing on. So what we call life is seen from a more complete place of understanding, not from a limited view of what we've been told from time immemorial, but from seeing things as they really are, through awareness, through wisdom. And we begin to live life more fully, knowing what we call ourselves on a relative level to be these things coming together on an absolute level. And so it's a sense of self that we know ourselves on this relative level of existence. So there are these two understandings that come to support one another in our practice. Yes, there is a flow of changing processes of the body and the mind coming together moment to moment, changing and passing away. What we called self is just this, it's just a name, a concept that we put on it. We've thought it to be solid and enduring, but seen experientially that it's not. And it becomes more and more okay. Experientially, under a microscope of awareness, it's been seen as empty. And some people have expressed that here in this retreat, that seeing, seeing the emptiness of it all. So seeing it at the level of absolute or ultimate reality. And yet, on this relative and relational plane of existence, it's useful to say that there is a sense of self. So, Joseph and I were talking about this earlier today, and um, he gave this example, which is really. Uh, a wonderful example, he said, it's just like having a cup. It's useful to have this cup and to know it as its cup, as a cup, to know its usefulness. But under a microscope, we can see these. this is just a bunch of molecules changing and pretty much, you know, mostly empty of any solidity. So there are two different levels of understanding. We know life to be as this body-mind continuum, just as we might know a cup to be. There's a level of its usefulness. There is a sense of self that truly exists. And it helps to see on the relative reality that there is a sense of, when we know it on an ultimate reality, there doesn't have to be any attachment to it, to this sense of self. There's a kind of connection of compassion with it. On the ultimate, absolute reality, it can be without seeing it that way without coldness or without like an uh, indifferent attitude when we have a sense of, this is a sense of self, this is something useful that we can call this body-mind continuum. So on a relative level, compassion supports the tender connection that we have with all of life, that very tender sense of agency that we really have as human beings, as this sense of self that we're carrying through life. But we also experientially understand that we can operate on this earth with greater wisdom, with less attachment, and we can be still a great source of goodness and help. Support with one another. So, one of um, the great <clears throat> um, elders that have been in my life is Aiken Roshi. He was a Zen teacher, passed away already. Lived in Hawaii, and had um, I had the pleasure to meet with him on Maui when he lived on Maui. And this is what he said about this self, no self. He said, we hear about no self and think it's wrong to have a self when we practice in in this Buddhist lineage. But on a relative level, we must respect that there is a sense of self. And this sense of self can be an agent of good in this world. So I'd like to end with this wonderful, um, also wonderful teacher of the Dharma, Tony Packer. The emergence and blossoming of understanding, love, and intelligence or wisdom has nothing to do with any tradition, no matter how ancient or impressive. It has nothing to do with time. It happens completely on its own when a human being questions, wonders, wonders, listens and looks without getting stuck anywhere in fear, pleasure, pain. When self-concern is quiet in abeyance, heaven and earth are open. The mystery, the essence of all of life, is not separate from the silent openness of simple listening. So let's Let the words dissolve too and just come to a place of quiet in ourselves.